It's so good to be able to worship together, uh, though virtually. We're so grateful that we can continue to just gather around God's word. And today is an interesting moment because right now there's some of us that are joining in online because for whatever reason you couldn't join our fall retreat. And please know that uh, I am missing you in advance. Um, while we're at the retreat, we're wishing that you could be there live and in person. Um, but we're grateful that we get to connect this way. But also, uh, for those that are at the retreat, I, I'm going to encourage them to actually log in after the fact and check out this message because I really believe it's an important message within this series that we've been in. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks or logging on, you know that we are in the middle of a series called Recovering Discipleship. We've been wrestling with this idea of what would it look like if we compare the first followers of Jesus with modern day 2022 New York City followers of Jesus and ask the question, is there anything that was lost from the original followers of Jesus that needs to be recovered? We've been also asking during these last two plus years of such upheaval to all of our lives, has there been anything lost personally in our following of Jesus that in this season we need to prayerfully ask God to help us to recover. And so we're going to go to the passage of Scripture that we've been in the last several weeks. We're going to be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And the word of God reads as follows. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their, their number daily those who were being saved. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to worship, to gather around your word, and we ask that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus? Reveal him to each and every one of us. Help us to hear your voice. Illuminate the scriptures to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, when we look at this text, I want you to pay attention and notice something that's quite interesting when we look at verse 46. It says, about these first followers of Jesus, it says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, but it also says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I want you and I to notice this interesting cadence, this interesting rhythm of worship that existed in these first followers of Jesus. If you and I took a sampling of their week, we would notice, if we were stalking them, we were looking at their Google Calendar after the fact, we were trying to track what was your week look, look like, we would come away with some interesting data. We would notice that they, their weeks were gathered by these corporate, larger gatherings and these smaller, more intimate ones. It's an interesting thing to think about one's week being parsed out this way, where you're gathering with several others in a more larger setting, 
and then you're gathering in a smaller intimate setting in someone's home. I think one way to think about it is um, if you are the owner of an aging phone, aging cell phone. Uh, I remember uh, not so long ago I was asking uh, my sister. I said, hey, how's your phone? You've had it for a bit. Is it still working well? And uh, she, like, responded with great confidence. She said, oh, yeah, it's fine. I was like, really? You've had it for a lot of years. How's the battery? And she said, oh, no, it's good. You know, uh, I get up in the morning and I make sure it's charged before I go to work. And then once I get to work, uh, I got to make sure it's plugged and uh, it's charging all day while I'm at work. And then when I go home, before I go to my second job, I go and charge it. And then when I'm at my job, my second job, I charge it. And basically the battery lasts me all day. And as I'm listening to this, I'm chuckling. I'm like, that does not sound like a battery that lasts all day. It sounds like a battery that if you are not constantly charging it, it's going to die in a couple moments. And if you think about these first followers of Jesus, it's an interesting thing. The way their week was set up, it was set up in such a way that they were constantly recharging in what I would call these sacred centers. The temple was a sacred center. They would go there and be in the presence of God and with each other, listening to scripture. There was a lot that happened in the temple, and we're going to unpack some of that. But then they would go home, and in their homes they would gather and break bread. And we read several things that would happen in their homes as well, whether it was reflecting on the gospels and the life and ministry of Jesus or having a meal together or actually sharing communion. Some amazing things were happening in both the temple and at home. And what I want to draw our attention to is that this rhythm, this cadence is not just some random thing that they arbitrarily chose for themselves but actually, while they were in the temple or at home, they would have been in both spaces, having been powerfully informed by Jesus. Because Jesus, when we read the Gospels, he actually was in both spaces, in the temple and at home, quite a bit. If you read the Gospels, even just a cursory reading of it, you would encounter Jesus in both of these sacred centers a number of times, in the temple and at people's homes. And so what I want us to spend time is thinking about what could we learn from Jesus in the temple? What could we learn from Jesus at homes as we look at these first followers of Jesus embodying that, continuing in that rhythm, that cadence, and how they saw Jesus be in both spaces. And in order to do that, I want to draw our attention to one of the most pivotal moments when Jesus entered into the temple and he did something that was quite astonishing. He opens the scroll that the prophet Isaiah is found, and he does something in this moment. It's found in the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16 to 21. Look at what it says. It says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We're going to unpack this verse in just a moment, but I want to give you some context to talk for a moment what took place in the temple. See, in the life of the Jewish people, the temple was a really busy, active place for so much of their life as worshipers of God. What took place in the temple? For one, almsgiving took place in the, in the temple. And so if you were a member of the community, the Jewish community, and you were in need of some physical support, whether it's financial or food, and, and you needed that kind of support from the community, it happened at the temple. But also at the temple, it was a place where disputes were settled. Often the rabbis were called in to cast judgment on a situation. But principally what happened at the temple was the reading of Scripture, whether it was Moses or the prophets, and then prayers. Why is that important? Because when we look at this moment in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, it's a very interesting moment for the church. Because at this moment, the followers of Jesus that we're reading about are actually all Jewish. At this point, non-Jews had not joined the community of disciples. This was only comprised of Jews who had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so what we're reading about is that these followers of Jesus, these Jewish followers of Jesus who put their faith in him as a Messiah, at this moment, the best way to understand it, they kind of have both feet in different worlds. They still kind of have one foot in Judaism though they're believing in Jesus as the Messiah, and then they have this other foot in the explicit, exclusive community of followers of Jesus. And this actually took place, church history tells us, till about A.D. 100 when they were actually officially kicked out of the synagogues. Because what happened during this period, the, the first followers of Jesus were considered to be part of a sect within Judaism. They were called the Way, people of the Way. They actually, at this point, it's not until later on in the book of Acts that we read it was the first instance where they were distinctly called Christians, which means baby Christ. And so there was this name that was necessary to identify these followers of Jesus for several reasons. One, because they weren't like neatly defining or, or they weren't best defined to say that they were Jews, even though they met at the temple and they read the scriptures that the Jews read because what made them distinct is that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But also later on in the book of Acts, now when non-Jews joined the community, you could no longer call them Jews or consider them to be a sect within Judaism. So they were searching for a name that would capture this brand new community and they said, I know what we'll call them. We'll call them Christians, baby Christ, because these people they resemble Jesus. They look like Jesus. They're almost like small carbon copies and facsimiles of who Jesus is. That's fast forward. But at this point, they got both feet, one foot in Judaism, in that kind of community space, another with the, with the church. And what's interesting is that we find them doing exactly what we just read Jesus did. It says they were in the temple. And as they were in the temple, what were they likely to hear? 
they were likely to hear Moses being read, the first five books of the Old Testament, or the prophets. And they were likely to hear these texts read and expounded upon. But imagine there's a big crowd of faithful Jews, but within this crowd, there's a small group of people, this this sect called the Way, who were Jews who believed in Jesus, and they're hearing the same sermon being preached by the rabbi, but they're hearing it in a very distinct way, a unique way. And the way they're hearing it is best understood through Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, where he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, what Jesus did at that moment when he opens the scroll and he goes to the prophet Isaiah, he finds a passage from Isaiah that spoke of the coming Messiah. And he reads this glorious passage about the Messiah being anointed by the Spirit of God. And through this anointing, he would set the prisoners free and bring recovery of sight to the blind. All these incredible things. And then he proclaims in their hearing this scripture, the one that you all are waiting to be fulfilled and be accomplished. When the Messiah comes, this scripture we believe will be fulfilled. And then he says, you've just heard it. You've just witnessed it being fulfilled right now. And so when these faithful Jewish believers in Jesus that were part of this first community of the followers of Jesus, when they are still gathering in the temple with other Jews and they're listening to Moses being preached and the prophets, they listen differently because whatever they heard, they asked the question, How does Jesus uniquely fulfill this? How is Jesus the fulfillment of what we're hearing? In this room where everyone else is waiting for the Messiah to come, we believe he's come. And so when the rabbi is talking about what's to come and what's to be fulfilled in Jesus, we're listening and saying that's already fulfilled in our Messiah. You see... When they gathered at the temple, they looked to hear the scriptures taught and understood it in this way because they remembered something else that Jesus told them after he resurrected. Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, it's this incredible passage. It's after Jesus resurrects, he's on this road to Emmaus. The scriptures tell us it's about a seven-mile walk, and he's walking with his disciples, and it says that they didn't recognize him. Imagine they've just seen him crucified, buried, and they are not at a place where they yet believe that he rose from the dead, and he's walking with them, and look at what it says happens during this walk. Jesus turns to them and said, He said to them, How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so you got to follow these faithful Jewish believers in Jesus as they're gathering and they're listening to the scriptures expounded. They're remembering Jesus' words himself when he said, all of the law, 
all of the prophets, what it's ultimately pointing to is me. I'm the fulfillment of everything you've been waiting for. All the prophetic promises, everything you've been longing for and hoping for, I am the fulfillment. And so when you read the scriptures, when you hear them taught, understand that they're all pointing to me. This is essentially what he's telling them on this Emmaus Road journey. And so now these first followers of Jesus, these Jewish believers that put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, they would gather corporately to hear the scriptures taught. And as they heard the scriptures taught in the synagogue, they heard it differently. They saw it differently because they knew that these scriptures only made sense in light of who Jesus was. That's them. But how does this impact us? What I want to propose to us, if we take our cues from this first community of these followers of Jesus, and we ask ourselves, what might need to be recovered from these followers of Jesus in our day and age, what I would humbly submit to you is that I think we desperately need to recover this posture of gathering in worship with the expectation that Jesus fulfills all things. That Jesus fulfills all things. Imagine, they would gather and they knew that no matter what was said, no matter what was taught, they knew that it was only going to point to fulfillment that could be found only in Jesus. They knew that everything about their corporate gathering in the synagogue would only find its truest expression, its truest meaning, its ultimate beauty would only be found if it was pointing to Jesus and experience in his fulfillment of God's promises. Why I think that's something that we have to recover is because often, if we're honest, when we gather as a community, we're often not coming so that we would encounter Jesus in this way, that we would seek Jesus as the fulfiller of our longings, of our hopes, the one who alone can fill our hearts. Often we come to Jesus not for him to fill our hearts himself, but we often seek Jesus in the hopes that he would fill our hearts with other things. Often we seek Jesus for the blessings he can give rather than seek Jesus for the blessing that he is alone. That we gather to be fulfilled by him. Imagine if that was our motive, if that's the thing that woke us up Sunday mornings and pushed us through whatever we had to push through in order to be with the community of God's people, it would be the understanding that I gather with the community of Jesus because I believe together with them that when we gather, we will experience his fullness. We will experience him fulfilling our longings, fulfilling our, the promises that he's made. We gather knowing that nothing else can satisfy. No one else can satisfy. Everything else would leave us empty. But like these Jewish believers in Jesus, we gather with that clear conviction that in him and him alone can we find fulfillment because he and he alone brings true fulfillment. As Jesus fulfills the promises of, the, of God as Messiah, 
And these Jewish believers modeled what it was like to gather with that expectation, to gather in the temple like Jesus, knowing that he alone is the fulfillment of all things. Imagine how that would change their lives. Imagine how that might change our life. I think for some of us, if we're honest, if we're saying that Jesus, in Jesus alone can we find the fulfillment that we long for because he is the fulfiller of God's promises, then I think what we have to wrestle with is where are we presently finding fulfillment other than Jesus? What's the thing that we are trusting in? What's the thing that we believe that that thing alone can fill our longings when Jesus alone can do that? It might look like us having to put our jobs and our careers, our possessions, our pursuits in that second place or that third place in life because it might mean that we have to recognize that we've allowed it to crouch into that first spot where Jesus alone should fill. I ask myself, and I want to invite you to ask the same thing. Are you and I finding fulfillment in Jesus? Does Jesus complete you? The same Jesus who entered into the temple and said, these promises are fulfilled in me. The same Jesus that these first followers of Jesus gathered in the temple and said, he's the fulfillment of everything we're hearing from Moses to the prophets. Are we finding fulfillment in that same Jesus? If not, that's something that we have to recover. The second thing I want us to look at in this cadence and this rhythm, the church was gathering in the temple, but then throughout the week, they scattered throughout this, the, the then known world, the first century Palestine, and they're gathering in homes all over. And as they're scattering, it invites us to ask the question, what was it like when Jesus visited homes? What did Jesus do? And how might that be informing what they were doing in homes? And actually, when we take a look at the Gospels, we see some tremendous things. Look at what Mark chapter 1, verse 29 and onward says. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and immediately they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. We we're reading here in this moment, an entire town was emptied out and came to the door of a home where Jesus was. Then there's this other moment in the Gospel of Mark that's actually just as fascinating. Mark chapter 2, verse 2 and onward, it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on when Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And so just in these two passages, and there's so many other moments in the Gospels where Jesus, we see him in homes 
not just temples, but we see him in homes. And what we discover is that anytime Jesus was invited into a home, he transformed the home into a, a place of encounter, a place of worship, a place of teaching, a place of ministry, of hospitality. After Jesus visited a home, that home was marked by his presence. His lordship was experienced there. And so we see this cadence in Jesus' life where in the temple, he does extraordinary things. We didn't have time to read of healings that took place in the temple and teachings that took place in the temple. And we didn't have time to read all the moments where Jesus is in homes and he's teaching and ministering and doing incredible things through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see the same cadence, the same rhythm in the life of the first followers of Jesus, where they gathered in the temples, but they gathered in homes. So much so that we read in Acts, which is really, really powerful, in this rhythm of gathering in the temple and in homes. Look at what it says. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So imagine what's happening for these first followers of Jesus. They're gathering in the temple, but they're also gathering in homes. They're experiencing the transforming power of Jesus. So much so that in Acts 2, we just read, it tells us that the way they ate their meals were transformed. That it wasn't just meals just for the sake of meals. It wasn't just average or regular. It says that they ate their meals differently. Could you imagine that Jesus could transform our lives so much so that the way we do basic, rudimentary things ends up being different? That's what happened for these first followers of Jesus. And this is happening in their homes. Their homes were transformed into places of powerful encounter with Jesus. Their homes became ministry centers. I remember a friend of mine told me a story that I'll never forget. His home was like this Holy Spirit hospital where constantly people were coming in and out. Multiple nights a week, they would have Bible studies and meals together. It was just so much activity around who Jesus was. I remember he told me the story that there was this one night where folks were just hanging out, they were having a meal, and while in just the course of the meal, they began to pray. And this moment of prayer that, sh that they thought might have just been a quick thing ended up becoming like a real moment of worship and waiting on God. And it, it just kept spilling over to the point where there were some folks that they actually assumed a comfortable place on the carpet. They just laid down on the carpet. They are like, we're going to be here for a while. And so they just laid down on the carpet and they were just worshiping and seeking God in their home. And he told me a story of his little kid. They're grown now, they're adults, but his little child was tired. And the little child literally stepped over a body of someone who was on the carpet worshiping, didn't even think twice, stepped over the body and went to their dad and said, I want milk. And he went and got milk for the child. But we chuckled because for this kid, it was normal for them. They, they literally didn't even think twice of someone laying down on the floor praying in the middle of the living room because for them, their home was not just where they slept or where they did their homework or where they played with their toys. Their home was a place that was marked by God meeting people. 
We see this in the life of Jesus, but we see this also in the life of the first followers of Jesus. And I think this is something that we desperately need to pray about being recovered in our discipleship. For so often, many of us, the only place that we encounter Jesus is in the temple, in the gathered sacred space of a Sunday gathering. And man, that's important. And we need to recover that. I don't want to take that for granted. For some of us, if we're honest, just gathering on Sunday has become a struggle, a greater struggle than perhaps it was, especially during the pandemic. Uh, These days when I talk to pastors, a committed person in their church is someone who gathers once a month. Man, that's That's a scary truth that that's actually what we are landing on as someone who's really engaged. Now, now let me be honest. That actually doesn't mean that someone is deeply engaged. It just shows how bad the situation is. That if someone just gathers together with the rest of the church once a month, then that's someone who's really committed. But actually what we read, they were gathering daily. They were gathering quite frequently. And I I need you to hear me when I say this. If you hear this and you think, oh, he's judging me or I feel bad enough, why is he piling on guilt? That's not the intent at all. Because actually, to be clear, gathering consistently, that doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves us. Religious devotion, outward compliance and conformity to these things doesn't save any of us. Only Jesus saves us. However, if we're going to be honest and look at what discipleship was then and what it is now, we have to reconcile the fact that we have settled for a far reduced version of gathering with the people of God. They gathered consistently in these bigger gatherings, but they also gathered in homes. And so perhaps you're listening to this and processing, maybe one or the other has to be recovered for you. Maybe you're in a season where, man, the thing that really needs to be recovered is a commitment to gather with the people of God, with that expectation that they had that Jesus is is the fulfillment of all things. We come to look how he fulfills all things. We gather with that intention. Maybe that's what you need to be recovering right now in your discipleship. Or maybe as you're looking at the rhythm of the early church and recognizing Jesus' own cadence and how he Uh, showed up in people's homes. Maybe you're looking at where you live and realize this is just a place where I sleep and pay bills and do life, but I haven't allowed this to become a place of encounter where I encounter Jesus here with others and this becomes a sacred center. Wherever you're at, what would it look like for together as a community we allow Jesus to help us recover both things. Where we are gathering consistently as a body together, where we're coming together every Sunday to worship, to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. And when we don't see each other for one week or two, we call each other, we remind each other, we encourage each other, come on, don't forsake the assembling together with others, as Hebrews 10 tells us, to not do so, to... to, to to gather and to prioritize gathering, but what could it look like also for us from Monday to Saturday, outside of Sunday, say, Jesus, transform my home, transform my apartment, transform the coffee shop where I meet, 
Transform the restaurant where I go to lunch. Transform the park that I walk to. These everyday rhythms, these, these rudimentary things of life, what it would look like for Jesus, for us to allow Jesus to transform our homes and the very basic things that we do all the time, that they could become places of transformation and ministry and encounter with Jesus. Imagine if we too had a rhythm like the first church of gathering and scattering. And in both places, when we're gathered or when we're scattered in our homes throughout the week, that Jesus would be just as present, just as transforming. If we were commit to that, I believe our growth, our maturity, our joy in Jesus would reach unprecedented levels. Imagine what could that mean for our neighborhoods. Imagine what it could mean for Roosevelt Island, for Sunnyside, for Woodside, for Corona, for LIC, for Astoria. Imagine what that could look like for places in Brooklyn where folks come to be part of our church or other parts of the city. For throughout the week, the presence of Jesus is being experienced in homes as well as when we gather here. Our city needs this kind of rhythm to be embodied by a people like us. And we need it so that we could fully encounter Jesus. Could I invite us to pray at this time? Lord Jesus, we come to you. We pray you'd help us to wrestle with the honesty of what needs to be recovered. Lord, for many of us, perhaps recovering the gathering with other believers in the temple, in a Sunday setting, is, is the thing that our discipleship needs recovering in the most in that area. But perhaps, Lord, we're hearing what, what happened in the first church and what we see in the life of your son, and we're recognizing that our homes have not become the places of encounter, of ministry, of discipleship that we see for the first church. Lord, whichever space needs to be recovered individually, I pray that we would recover both spaces corporately as a people and that we would see your spirit at work powerfully. God, meet us and help us to see this recovered in our discipleship. In Jesus' name, let's worship together at this time.